This episode of the Bendy Bodies podcast is brought to you by Bowerfine Premium Braces and Supports. Bowerfine promotes mobility and activity through pain relief and improved joint control. Actually, this is shocking, but 88% said that they had had a problem with a local anesthetic injection not working adequately or properly. 88%. I mean, that's huge. That is huge. Welcome back to the Bendy Bodies Podcast, where we strive to improve well-being, enhance performance, and optimize career longevity for every Bendy body. This is co-host Jennifer Milner, here with the Hypermobility MD, Linda Bluestein. We are so glad you are here to learn tips for living your best Bendy life. This information is for educational purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice. Our guest today is our very own Dr. Linda Bluestein. Dr. Bluestein, welcome to Bendy Bodies. <laughs> Hi, Jen. Thanks for having me. <laughs> it's always great to chat with you. I know. It's always great to chat. And we, we have something to talk about today that is absolutely one of your areas of expertise. But for the, the people out there who may not know exactly what you do in your background and just know you as one of the voices on Bendy Bodies, can you tell them a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I am an anesthesiologist. And what that means is that I went through regular medical school and then, and then my residency was specific to anesthesia. And I did that at the Mayo Clinic. And so I then practiced in the operating room for over 20 years before my own EDS. I like to say it kind of caught up with me. The signs were there for a very, very long time, but I started having more and more and more problems. So I had to come up with a plan C because plan A was to be a professional ballerina. That didn't work out. Plan B was to be an anesthesiologist. That worked out for quite a while. And then plan C is to be a EDS specialist, which you know was not really something that I originally planned to do. But so I've been able to take my training as an anesthesiologist, which really includes a lot more things than I think people realize. As an anesthesiologist, we need to know basically two buckets of things. And the first bucket is the things in the body that affect the potential for complications in surgery. So that means how the kidneys are working, how the liver works, the cardiopulmonary system. We need to know a lot about the heart and arrhythmias. And we need to know a lot about the lungs. Of course, we take over your breathing in certain circumstances. We need to know a lot about neurology and pain management actually as part of anesthesia. So I did go through pain management training in, in my anesthesia residency as well. And then we need to know about the surgeries, of course, because they have specific, I mean, I don't know how to do any of them, <laughs> but, but I need to know how they impact the safety of the patient and what type of anesthesia do you need for XYZ surgery and the potential complications that the patient might have that influence the type of anesthesia that you choose, what kind of positioning is the patient going to be in, and a lot of different surgical nuances. Oh, this type of surgery is very low risk. So even if somebody is really you know, sick, it's usually going to be okay. Or this other type of surgery is really high risk. So if the person isn't really, really in their best shape going into the surgery, then maybe we need to have a conversation with the surgeon and and the patient and maybe, you know, try to get them better optimized before we have the surgery. So it was really, you know, taking kind of my experience as an anesthesiologist and then my own self-study on EDS, you know, there is no EDS fellowship, right. um, which is appropriate. We can't really have fellowships based on conditions. We need to have fellowships based on, you know, bigger buckets of things, but I've basically taken kind of all of these different areas of knowledge and training, and then I can put them together and, and I can specifically advise patients and clients if they're going to have surgery. This is a big thing that we often talk about because I have kind of a unique background in that, in that regard. Mm -hmm. Which um, we are all very grateful for <laughs> because you share that knowledge with us. So for anybody listening who has not figured it out, we're talking about anesthesia today. <laughs> <laughs> And it's a conversation that's worth having and sort of broader than that, we're talking about preparing for surgery. So it's not just the anesthesia aspect of it. And we wanted to discuss this for two reasons. One, many bendy bodies may 
end up having a surgical procedure at some point. And we know it can be scary and it can be a bit of an unknown. And we know our bodies may need extra preparation. We may want to be really well prepared for whatever we're going in for. And second, bendy bodies can have unique reactions to anesthesia, uh, sort of atypical skin healing and so many more issues. So we thought this would be a valuable conversation to have that's broader than preparing for this type of surgery or that type of surgery. So let's, let's dig into it. First of all, let's talk about hypermobility and medication in general. Uh, as an anesthesiologist and a hypermobility specialist, what have you seen with that? So the challenging thing is that a lot of people with symptomatic joint hypermobility, they often end up on a lot of different medications and sometimes a lot of different supplements as well. So one of the things we need to be aware of are potential drug-drug interactions. So drugs can interact with each other, but on a maybe the person isn't really aware of it and it's kind of a low threshold type thing, but now you go in for surgery and anesthesia. And a lot of people don't realize when you're getting an anesthetic, especially a general anesthetic, well, actually, I guess any type of anesthetic, but especially a general anesthetic, I should say, you you are often getting eight, 10 different drugs during the course of that procedure. So it's important to be aware of what these potential interactions are, especially with supplements. And we'll get into that a little bit more in, in a little bit. But um, a lot of people that have symptomatic joint hypermobility, they do react more easily to supplements. They can be more sensitive to what we call excipients, which are the quote unquote inactive ingredients in medications. And they can often have a long they might call it an allergy list, but some, some of them are allergies and some of them are intolerances. And I definitely advise my patients and clients to, to really go through all of the medications and uh, supplements that you may have a, a quote unquote allergy to, and to really go through that list and describe next to each one, what is the reaction that you've had? Because some of those maybe can even be removed from the list. For example, I've seen people come in with lists, you know, 20 things long. And I will tell you, the operating room is a very fast paced environment. If you come in with a list of 20 things long, that's a lot harder for a person to pay attention to than if you come in with a list of three things. Hmm. So I always recommend that people clarify what are true allergies, meaning that, you know, your throat swells up, you get hives, you get a rash. You know, if you have an anaphylactic or anaphylactoid type reaction, your blood pressure drops, um, you may have difficulty breathing, you may have wheezing, but you don't have to have like that extreme of a reaction in order to have an allergic reaction. But then a lot of reactions are in intolerances where a person maybe has some GI issues. They might have some abdominal pain or something like that. But a lot of what people often list are actually not they're not allergies. They're not intolerances. They're just known side effects of the medication. For example, they'll say opioids make me nauseated. Personally, I would remove that from the list because that is a known side effect of opioids. You can say, I get nauseated really easily from medications, you know, as part of your disclosing your medical history. But I just think that, that for that list of medications and medication allergies, you want to keep that highly specific and, and things that are really relevant. So, so that's the first thing. The second thing is people that have symptomatic joint hypermobility often have a lot of variability from one day to another. So things that might, you know, not impact them negatively one day might impact them negatively a different day. So I think that's just another important thing to be aware of. And then lastly, it's so important to disclose to your surgeon when you're seeing them before you know, before you're even discussing surgery, make sure you disclose all of your medications and all of your supplements, whether they're ones you take every day, ones that you take on an as needed basis. Um, you know, it's very, very common for people to forget um, mentioning supplements. And I would even recommend taking all of your supplements with you to your pre-op appointment so that they can see the bottle and they can see what's listed on there. Now, of course, we also know that supplements aren't regulated like medications are. So supplements mm -hmm. can have other things in them that, that are not necessarily on the ingredient list. That's a whole nother topic, but I think it's a good idea to bring all your medications and all your supplements in a bag to your pre-op appointment so that the person who is doing your pre-op assessment knows exactly what you're taking. That's great advice. And even if you can't bring the, all the medications, maybe you could take pictures of the labels to be yes. able to bring that or something along those lines, just so that they have a clear idea 
I know every time I fill out forms with my doctors, they're like, list all medications and supplements. And I'm like, oh my gosh, again, but it's important. It's important that they understand all the things and that they can see everything because as you said, how do those things interact? But even going bigger than that, is there any, are there any studies out that talk about how people with connective tissue disorders may process medication in, in general differently or may process anesthesia differently? Just my casual observance, I know I metabolize anesthesia super fast and always startle all of the doctors <laughs> with how quickly it wears off and other sort of anecdotal incidents of people saying, well, this medication had the opposite effect on me. And that just seems to be more common in hypermobility. Is that just a thing that I'm seeing or is there, is there some sort of common thread to that? So the, the fascinating thing about that is right. We have a lot more anecdotal evidence than we do have actual studies. I will, I will tell you, I wrote an article with my mentor, Dr. Pradeep Chopra, who is also an anesthesiologist, but he has done pain management for, he's a board certified pain management physician, and he's done pain management for most of his career. I don't know how much time he spent in the operating room, but he is an expert at treating people with symptomatic joint hypermobility. He's really phenomenal. Um, He and I wrote an article together on surgical and anesthesia considerations for people with EDS. And we tried to get that published in a high level journal. You know, we tried to get that. I thought when we were writing it, I was like, this is going to go in the new England journal of medicine. (laughs) This is going to go in JAMA. I mean, I was like, (laughs) "We're, we're, we're shooting for the moon. And I will tell you, this is so sad. But, but he, cause he was the first author, he submitted it to so many different journals and they all said, mm, no one's interested in this. And, and I, we were both like, you have got to, they need to be interested in this. Mm-hmm. And, and I trained, like I said, at the Mayo Clinic and, and one of my faculty there who was head of the department for a while, he was actually president of the ASA at one point, which is our big you know, international organization, the American Society of Anesthesiologists. Mm-hmm. And he, he's kind of an expert in positioning under anesthesia. And I tried to talk to him once and say, look, this is a huge, important topic. People with EDS and getting positioned under anesthesia, this is, I believe we can really cut down complications. Mm -hmm. If anesthesiologists were more aware, there is a specific population of people that are at increased risk of having problems with positioning, but there was no, there was no interest. So, so I think a study coming out on how people with these conditions react to general anesthesia or other type of anesthesia medications. I think that we're quite a long ways from having a study like that, but I will tell you that there are some fascinating genomic and pharmacogenomic um, studies. So you can have your uh, DNA base pairs analyzed, which is different from looking doing the type of genetic testing that looks for a disease. This is genetic testing that looks more like at pathways and things like that. So if you have that kind of genetic testing done, it can tell you, oh, you are a fast metabolizer of Mm -hmm. XYZ. You are a slow metabolizer of ABC. Um, That type, that pharmacogenomic testing can give you information about anesthesia and some of the anesthesia drugs like propofol. That's the Michael Jackson drug that, uh, you know, that he was getting administered at home. Um, it's a drug that we use all the time. It's very, very safe. If you're doing it in a monitored setting, it's not safe if you're doing it at home. So propofol, yes, there's a, there's a specific genomic test that we can do that gives us information about how you metabolize propofol. So yes, yes. And no, there's no big studies, but we do have some information about that. And in terms of bendy bodies and, and these genomic findings. Um, there is some fascinating research that's coming out about MTHFR, which I don't know how many people in the audience are familiar with MTHFR, but that is one of those, you know, pharmacogenomic things that we can test for. And there's Mm -hmm. long been a suspicion that people with symptomatic joint hypermobility have a higher prevalence of MTHFR mutations, either homozygous or heterozygous. And um, Tulane actually published a paper in August about this and high serum folate levels, but low intracellular folate levels, and that that being correlated with symptomatic joint hypermobility. So we, we definitely are on the cusp of, I think, a lot of information in this regard, but we don't have like great, huge studies yet. Mm. But that's 
encouraging that these things are being looked at and we've got a lot of dots that have now been drawn and we're just in the process of connecting those dots, right? Yes. So the dots have been plotted and it's just sort of connecting it. So if, if someone is going to be going in for surgery for some reason, what are some important like diagnosed or even suspected medical conditions a person should share with the anesthesia team? So there are a bunch of different things that are very important to, to, to mention. And for my patients that are, they're working with me and they send me a message and they say, Hey, I'm planning on this X, Y, Z surgery. Can we meet to discuss that? Oftentimes, one of the things that I will do is I will provide a customized letter because again, I know what the anesthesia team is going to want. I know what the surgeon's going to want. And I've written a lot of these letters now, and I've gotten really great feedback from patients, I will write them for clients too. And I've, I've gotten really great feedback that, you know, they showed it to the surgeon, they showed it to the anesthesia team, and they seem to really read them carefully. And I used to have these cards that I created when I had my previous practice. And I keep thinking, oh, I should redo those cards, but they're not as helpful because they're generic. Whereas Mm -hmm. the letter is customized and it lists, Mm -hmm. these are your specific complications that you've had under anesthesia before, for example. And I know how to describe those in terms that the person reading the letter will go, oh, she knows what she's talking about. So anyway, so that's one thing that, that I, that I like to do, but it, but in terms of things that people should disclose, and I, and I agree if it's suspected or if it's formally diagnosed, these are things that people should talk about. So, so first things that like the, the function of the gut. So if you have gastroparesis, which is slow motility through the gut, or if you have gastroesophageal reflux disease we may want you to have an NPO or nothing per mouth, uh, nothing per os is the formal like Latin for that NPO duration. So we might want you to go, you know, a little bit on the longer end without mm. eating or drinking. The hard thing with the with the NPO guidelines is what we call them in anesthesia. So so again, that's nil per os is what it, the actual like formal thing is but it's, it's how long do you have to go without eating or drinking? And we actually know from looking at gastric fluid that you really should be able to drink water and other truly clear liquids up until two to four hours before the surgery, because those clear through the gut very quickly mm. and especially water. Cause if you aspirate water, meaning it comes up and goes into the lungs, that's not going to cause as much damage as like black coffee, which is also a clear liquid. So clear liquids are generally things that you can see through black coffee, can't see through, but Um, like apple juice would also be considered a clear liquid, but if you have gastroparesis or, and, or GERD gastroesophageal reflux disease, we may want to consider extending that NPO duration a little bit. Um, And usually solids and clear liquids, you know, are different. The duration that we advise people to, uh, you know, that they need to conform to, but sometimes for simplicity's sake, you will be told nothing to eat or drink after midnight, even if your surgery is not scheduled until three in the afternoon. And I will tell you why that is. Surgery time is of course, very, very valuable. It is extremely expensive. Having in every OR, there, there's probably between like eight and more, sometimes 15 people that are like assigned to that room, that case that are handling materials, whatever gonna be in the room. And, and so we don't want those people sitting idle. That's very, very expensive. So you might be scheduled for three o'clock in the afternoon, but you're told to come in at noon because if they've had some cancellations or whatever, no shows, then you're going to get moved up. Or sometimes they have everybody show up first thing in the morning. So we don't want to tell you that you can drink fluids or eat at two in the morning if we might be moving your surgery up quite considerably. So, um, so that's why usually people will just give a general thing of like nothing to eat or drink since midnight. If you do have a, uh, if you have dysautonomia, for example, or if you have other conditions where you are very sensitive to not eating or drinking and and being dehydrated, I would strongly recommend discussing that specifically with your surgeon and, or whoever's doing your pre-op and ask specifically can I please have clear liquids up until a couple hours before my surgery? Or, you know, can we loosen that part of the guidelines? Not the solids. Solids take a lot longer to clear through your body. And we don't want you to aspirate solids. We don't want those to come up and go into your lungs, but clear liquids are a different story. 
So the first thing is those things that can affect the NPO guidelines, the GERD and gastroparesis, and also dysautonomia can affect that kind of in the other direction. It's also important on dysautonomia to mention that because that can affect IV fluid management and medications mm. that we may give you or medications that we may ask you to you know, keep taking up until the time of surgery or ask you to hold. So when a person, whenever I was working in the operating room and someone came in and they had a diagnosis of dysautonomia, or even if I suspected it, there were a couple of times where I suspected it. As I started to learn more about these things towards the end of my career in the operating room, I would put the, that IV in right away and I would just start running it like, you know, wide open, especially if it was a young, healthy person, because I'm not going to fluid overload them. So, so those are important things to mention, um, GI things, and also dysautonomia. It's also important to mention if you have any issues with either storing, or if you've been diagnosed or have suspected sleep apnea, either obstructive sleep apnea or non-obstructive, because that can affect airway management, that can affect your sensitivity to opioids and things like that, that can affect our considerations for alternatives to opioids in the perioperative period, things that won't suppress your breathing as much. So those are the important things to mention. You also want to mention, and we'll talk about this more later, if you've had atypical responses to any type of anesthesia, like you were mentioning about, about how you react to general anesthesia, or if you've had an atypical response to local anesthesia, definitely mention that to your surgeon because that may influence what they're going to do. You also want to mention if you've had any problems with joint instability, especially for certain particular joints, like if you've had cervical instability, or maybe you've had instability of your temporal mandibular joint, which is your jaw, because we're going to be opening your jaw and putting in an airway device. So it's really important if you have any instability of your, of your jaw to, to let us know about that. If you have clicking or if it's ever dislocated um, and, and things like that, um, it's important to mention if you have a diagnosed or suspected Chiari malformation, because that can affect your breathing, that can affect your hemodynamics, your coordination, a lot of different um, issues. You want to mention if you've had any issues with poor healing or easy bruising, because that can affect things like management of the surgical incision, the choice of procedure. You want to mention if you've had prior adverse reactions to medication, tape, suture, skin prep, things like that, because that can influence those choices. And they'll actually put it on the schedule. If you've had an adverse reaction to one of the more common skin preps like betadine, they'll actually put that right on the schedule so that everybody knows. Um, so that's an important thing to mention. And then if you have diagnosed or suspected mast cell activation syndrome, you definitely want to mention that because that may change the medication regimen that we use for the anesthesia. And we may want to have different rescue medications on hand. Those are all really helpful. And some of those are things I would think about, but some of them like just mentioning different allergies like latex or, or betadine or something, I just wouldn't have thought of. So that's that's really great. Thank you. You mentioned as you were talking through that list, sort of, you might have a reaction to local, you might have a reaction to general anesthesia. There's a lot of confusion around that, I think. So can you talk about the different types of anesthesia and why we should know about them? Like what, what, what do we need to know? Sure. And they're, and they're really relevant because it influences potential risk for, for the surgery and the anesthesia. And there's different considerations that I think even as a patient, we should have. So you can have something done under straight local anesthesia. And what that means is you're not getting anything. You're not getting an IV. You're not usually not getting an IV placed. You're not getting anything though in the IV. You're not getting any medication at all. If you're getting straight local anesthesia, they might be putting um, just numbing medicine right in that specific area. So, you know, even if you're getting like a mole removed, that would be under local anesthesia. They're just injecting the numbing agent and then they're removing whatever it is that they're removing. But there are other procedures as well that can be done under local anesthesia. And then there's something called peripheral an anesthesia. And that's where we do like a type of block, like you and I were talking before we started recording that you know if a person has shoulder surgery, we might, we might do something called an interscaling block or a subclavicular block or a supraclavicular block, which sounds like maybe that's what what you had, um, but an interscaling block, the needle actually goes into the neck and will numb the entire upper extremity. So sometimes we do that type of anesthesia. And so it's really important for um, people to know what type of anesthesia is the surgeon planning to request that the anesthesia staff do if they're involved. So if you're having straight local, you probably don't have any anesthesia staff involved. If you're having 
a peripheral block, like an interscaling block, the anesthesiologist is going to be placing that block. So they will be involved. And usually they're giving you sedation on top of that. So I've had this happen so many times where someone has told me I had a general anesthesia. I had a general anesthetic. And I look at the anesthesia record from their previous anesthetic, and they did not have a general anesthetic. They had a peripheral block, and then they had they had so much sedation that they didn't have any awareness. Yes, exactly. exactly. You forget and you, and you just weren't aware during the procedure and, and right. You could have been talking during the procedure, but you just don't know that you had that level of consciousness. And I think that it's helpful if you've had any issues with prior anesthetics, and if you have enough time, it would be very helpful to actually get that anesthesia record, especially if it was done at a different facility. So let's say you're going, like I said, I meant I trained at Mayo Clinic. Say you're going to Mayo Clinic and you have a surgery and you had some complication and you're going back to Mayo Clinic and you're having another surgery, they will have that record. But Mm -hmm. let's say you go to a different facility, you might want to get that record from Mayo Clinic so you can take it with you so you can show it to the anesthesiologist and say, this is the problem that I had. Because they're going to be able to look at that and read it and, and really glean some good information. So I think that would be a good thing for people to do if they have enough time you know, beforehand. Mm-hmm. And then a neuraxial anesthetic is where you have either an epidural block or you have a spinal block. So you're numb basically from either the waist down or the chest down, depending on how much drug we administer. And that depends on how long the surgery is. So in that case, you're getting a needle put in your back and you're getting medication injected that will, you know, numb up basically that half or more than half of your body. And then the other two types of anesthesia are Monitored anesthesia care, which is MAC, which is when you get sedation by the anesthesia team. And um, oftentimes you think you had a general anesthetic because sometimes the MAC is so heavy that you think you had a general anesthetic. And then the last type of anesthesia, general anesthesia, is where you are like unresponsive. You know, you're not going to respond to pain to, you know, you, you usually don't have like a cough reflex and that, and that kind of thing. And usually with a general anesthetic, we're putting in some kind of airway device. Mm -hmm. So you might wake up with a sore throat. You might have a breathing tube that goes all the way through your vocal cords into your, um, into your trachea, or you might have a type of airway device that just rests in the back of your throat, which is a little less invasive. It depends on what, if the surgery requires paralysis or not. But the reason why I'm mentioning this is because a lot of people that have symptomatic joint hypermobility, a lot of us have difficulties achieving certain positions. So for me, for example, if I have to have another surgery, I think I will ask them to please not put both of my arms all the way out at my sides <laughs> in the standard, you know, on the cross position, because that is the, for most surgeries, you know, then we have access to both of your arms. If something happens and the IV suddenly gets infiltrated, meaning that, that now the fluid is leaking out. Mm-hmm. We can put an IV in the other arm. We, we like to have access to your arms for safety reasons, mm-hmm. but for me, that would really hurt my shoulders to have my mm-hmm. arms all the way out at my sides. So it's important to know, because if you're having a local anesthetic, it doesn't matter. You're never going to be, you're never going to be unable to communicate. For example, you're never going to be able in a situation where you can't let them know, Hey, that hurts. But if you're having a general anesthetic and sometimes you're going to be positioned under general anesthesia, and that's when you're at risk of subluxation or dislocation, especially if we've paralyzed you, because if we've paralyzed you and completely relaxed all your muscles, now, when we go to turn you, let's say you're having surgery on your um, lumbar spine and you're going to be prone, meaning you're laying on your belly. We put you to sleep. We, We have to put you to sleep on your back because we have to have access to your airway. We have to have access to your mouth to put in the breathing tube. So we put you to sleep on your back. We put all, we put the breathing tube in and all of that. And then we roll you. We, it's usually a bunch of people that are holding onto your body to roll you onto your belly. But if you have some unstable joints, especially if you have an unstable C-spine and then say, if you have craniocervical instability or any kind of instability in your cervical spine, it's very important for people to be aware, to be extremely careful. Not that we're not careful, but you know, you just want people to be aware, oh, this wrist is very loose. And so please be careful when you're positioning me. I also often recommend if people are having a general anesthetic, especially if they're having a position change like that, and you can ask your surgeon if that's going to be the case, because they'll definitely know. Like I would probably, if I was having a surgery nowadays and I was going to be positioned on my belly, I would probably go in wearing a bunch of braces. (laughs) 
<laughs> as a visual um, cue. And they, they may end up taking them off, but I would either put on braces or tape on my wrists, on my elbows, on the, on the joints on my body that are most problematic so that they see, oh, this person has enough problems with that joint that they actually have a brace that they wear, mm-hmm. you know, periodically. I don't wear it all the time. I just wear it periodically. But um, so I think those are things that are important for people to be aware of because most people don't realize that after we put you to sleep, sometimes we move you around. And we do that because we have to, it's not that we want to, but, um, and we always do it, of course, as safely as we possibly can. But, you know, if, if you have specific particular issues with joint stability, that's a really important thing to let people know about. Mm-hmm. And I, again, that's not something that I usually think about. I think about it during x-rays, you know, they're like, you need to hold this and do this. And I'm like, that's really uncomfortable. Right. Can we figure right. out a different position? But right. as you said, I'm awake at the time. Right. I'm able to talk about that. So just dwelling on the different types of anesthesia, just a little bit longer, general anesthesia, you are completely out. And I think a, a large majority of people would be like, sign me up for that. That's what <laughs> I want. I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to be awake at all, but it's not as if the other types of anesthesia epidurals, which are common during childbirth, you know, or um, like you said, a truly local anesthesia, like when you're getting oral dental work for cavities and such, they're not going to do just a tiny amount and be like, this is going to hurt for a while, but just suck it up. So if, if people are concerned about that, if the doctor says you're going to do a nerve block, or we're going to do something along those lines, have a truthful conversation with the doctor and, and ask them questions. I would think, am I going to remember this? Will I be awake? Will I be able to tell you if I'm feeling pain? Um, cause that can be a scary thing to think I'm going into surgery. I'm not going to be technically unconscious, but you don't want to overdo the anesthesia. Correct. You don't want to do general anesthesia to have a mole removed. So yes. you want, to, you want <laughs> exactly because, because anesthesia, there's risks involved, right. right? And they're highly managed, but there are risks involved. So right. for all of those people who are getting nervous out there, as they listen to you describe <laughs> all of the non-general types, talk to your medical care providers because they really are not trying to keep you awake and torture you. Right, right. No, that's an excellent point. And I actually had a patient once who came for a hysterectomy and she wanted it done under spinal and it was the type that you could do under spinal and she Mm -hmm. wanted no sedation. And I was like, none, none whatsoever. Are you sure? None for when I put the needle in your back, none for when they're working on you. Nope. I want none. Like, okay, fine by me. I mean, that's really true to be honest. That's like the safest way. And, right. and, in, and in a lot of, um, you know, third world countries, what they will do is they will do lots and lots of procedures under spinal anesthesia and the anesthesiologist will do spinal, 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 but they won't stay there. I mean, they'll stay there for the first little while to make sure everything's okay for a little, but then, you know, they, they have limited resources. Yeah. So if you're not doing sedation on top of a spinal anesthetic, I mean, yeah, there, you're, that's an excellent point that, you know, we always have to consider the risks and benefits of, of everything and definitely talk to your surgeon about what are my different choices? Why might I consider different choices? And then talk to the anesthesia team also about the risks and benefits of the different options. And one of the things that I think is also just an important thing to, to mention, because you were talking about like, are you going to be aware or, or not aware? It's not always completely clear if a person is going to have recall or not. I remember so many times where oftentimes I would give a person some sedation before we would wheel them back to the operating room. Cause as you're getting that close, you know, you start to get nervous and there'd be times where somebody would seem still completely with it. They would look like they don't feel anything. And afterwards I would talk to them and they would say, I don't even remember saying goodbye to my family, for example. And then other times people are like, I don't feel a thing. And they're slurring <laughs> their words and they're, they seem like they're really out of it, but they'll remember like they'll say, mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I remember when you wheeled me back and blah, blah, blah. So it's not like there's a perfect correlation for, for us to be able to know. So I usually say you probably won't remember anything because I feel like mm-hmm. that's safer than saying you definitely won't remember anything because then if they do remember something, they're going to say, you weren't truthful with me, which is totally fair. And that's, mm-hmm. and that's a problem. I mean, we need people to know that they can trust us. Yep. Well, that's a great point. And I just have to throw this as an aside, you know, anesthesiologists have given the world some really, really great, funny home videos for us to watch. (laughs) So (laughs) just so glad that wasn't around when I got my wisdom teeth out. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That's so true. (laughs) 
we touched on this a little bit when we were talking about drug interactions and hypermobility in general, but do you observe anything specific in people with joint hypermobility and how they do react with local anesthesia? So it's really interesting because I worked in the operating room for over 20 years. So I've cared for, I don't know how many tens of thousands of patients probably, you know, cause there are days where you have lots and lots, if you're supervising nurse anesthetists, especially you'll have four rooms and every room has, you know, stacked. I mean, you know, so I've taken care of a lot of people, but for most of my anesthesia career, I wasn't that tuned into symptomatic joint hypermobility. I did. I wasn't mm-hmm. tuned into it at all for the first decade plus. Um, it was only in the, the very latter part. I did have, I remember one patient who had, she was coming for a C-section and spinal anesthesia is by far, by far the safest for a C-section. Again, it depends on the type of surgery, the patient's conditions, et cetera, but a pregnant woman coming for a C-section, that's the safest type of anesthesia in most every case. So that's what I wanted to do. She said, my last three spinals all failed. And I'm like, what? Spinals never fail. Epidurals, yes. Epidurals definitely fail. But spinals, I'm like, really? And I'm looking at the notes and it says they did get CSF because you know you need, need to see the mm-hmm. fluid flowing before you inject the medication. They said they saw it. So I talked to her and I said, you know, I still would really like to try doing a spinal if you're okay with that. And if it doesn't work, then we'll do a general anesthetic and put you to sleep. And guess what? It didn't freaking work. And wow. I had never had that happen in like, you know, again, I had done tons and tons of spinals. So now looking back on that particular young woman, I think she was completely resistant to local anesthesia mm-hmm. because spinals, the failure rate for spinals is exceedingly low because, mm-hmm. you know, of the way that they're done. And, and we have a very good marker of that we're in the right spot because of the fluid coming back. So in terms of like my clinical practice, it's not like I've been able to make that much observation, but there is some fascinating research looking at people with the Ehlers-Danlos syndromes and symptomatic joint hypermobility. And in fact, there was a survey done in uh, November of 2018, or maybe it was published in November of 2018. And they looked at 933 EDS patients that completed the survey, um, 99% of whom had received local anesthetics. And actually this is shocking, but 88% said that they had had a problem with a local anesthetic injection, not working adequately or properly. 88%. I mean, that's huge. That is huge. That is huge. Yeah. Now, interestingly, in the non-EDS population, 54% reported a similar problem. So, you know, it's it could be that the way they asked the questions, that their threshold for a problem with local anesthesia was very low, if that makes sense, because they wanted to pick up on all of the people that had this problem. But interestingly, there was a dental study that was done and they looked at people with EDS and non-EDS. And in that study, interestingly, they found 88% recalled inadequate pain prevention, whereas 33% recalled inadequate pain prevention in non-EDS respondents. So So the number of people with hypermobility was pretty constant between those two. Exactly. And, but the, oh, that's so interesting. Isn't that fascinating? 88% is a pretty high number. It's a huge number. Yeah. (laughs) So right now there is a, um, a study that is, they're taking enrollment for this study to look at local anesthetic sensitivity in people with EDS. And I don't know if they're including HSD. I don't know the details of the study, but that study won't be completed until 2025. And I did want to do, and I started to kind of formulate how I would do this, but I wanted to do in my office like injecting several different types of anesthetics. Cause we also know that there are differences between the different types of anesthetic. So like lidocaine is often more problematic than something like mepivacaine. Um, mm. So mepivacaine is something that we, something called mepivacaine and bupivacaine tend to be more successful than something like lidocaine. So, um, and there's things that we can do. There's additives that we can put in the local anesthetic. Like we can put clonidine in there. We can put epinephrine in there. There are things that we can put in that can help improve the success rate. Um, But this is a very important thing. If you have had problems with getting numb in the dentist chair, I'm really glad you mentioned the dentist because of course that's a really important one that when you're getting teeth worked on, that's a local anesthetic. So if you've had any problem with local anesthetics, definitely be sure to mention that to your surgeon, because even if you're having a general anesthetic, oftentimes they will inject local anesthesia into the incision so that it's less painful, you know, when you first wake up. That makes a lot of sense. 
I definitely have a, a sensitivity to local anesthesia. And my dentist finally, because I travel a lot with dance, he wrote me a note on his prescription <laughs> pad so that when I traveled, I could hand it to the other dentist yeah. that said, she metabolizes anesthesia very quickly. She's not a junkie. <laughs> <You know? laughs> please, please believe her when she says you need to give her more than the usual amount. Right. Um, right. So that's a lot about <laughs> the local anesthesia. It's so important. And I know that you, you said the things that people would want to discuss, like medical conditions that people would want to discuss, whether they were documented or whether they were suspected. I know it can be really difficult to talk to surgeons. <laughs> if you are not one, if you're not a, per, a member of the medical profession, uh, it can be a little intimidating. So at what point do people sit down and have these conversations with their surgeon and how can they give them the information that they need in a way that's respectful and yet not overloading or challenging or anything like that? Right. And I will tell you that that's true, whether you're a medical professional or not. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's I'm in, yeah. If I'm in an appointment and I'm talking to a surgeon who might be operating on me, I'm going to feel the exact same way. I will tell you, um, I shouldn't say, cause I don't know how you're going to feel, but I'm going to also feel nervous and it is hard to bring things up and ask questions. And, and definitely, um, those can be challenging conversations. I would recommend that people bring things up as soon as possible. And I would really recommend that people have a try to have as much of a detailed conversation with the surgeon as possible to make sure that the surgery is really addressing the root cause of the problem. Because that's the other thing that I observe with people that have symptomatic joint hypermobility is that we tend to have often less successful surgeries. And I think it's because sometimes it's, it's not really addressing the, what the root cause of the problem is. So if you have a bunch of loose joints and you have a surgery on one of them, you're going to have to recover from that surgery. And then you may be more dependent on some of your other joints. So I had a procedure and I, and I was on crutches for a while. And not only did the procedure not help my original problem, but being on crutches caused me all kinds of problems with both of my upper extremities, multiple joints in my upper extremities, those crutches just totally did me in and the non-weight bearing. So it's important first to find out what are the alternatives? Because there are almost always alternatives. What are the risks and benefits of the surgery? And then the other alternatives, which they may or may not know as much about, because if they're a surgeon, remember they have a scalpel, they like to cut. So I also, generally speaking, I advise my patients and my clients, it's good to have a surgeon who's, who's a little more experienced because it, with super young surgeons are super enthusiastic and maybe they just finished their training. So they have a lot of like really great current knowledge so that there's pluses and minuses to everything, of course, but they, but they also might not have seen as many complications and they might be more aggressive and they might not be as um, specific with their, with their patient selection. So ask what those other things are. If you have a lot of medical problems you may want to request that someone else do your, your surgical clearance. Sometimes the surgeon will do their own clearance for anesthesia, which is fine if you're relatively healthy, but if you have a lot of medical problems, you really should see your internist or, you know, whoever your general doctor is in order to get pre-op clearance. So like an orthopedic surgeon, for example, that's fine. If you're young and healthy and your orthopedic surgeon is going to quote unquote, clear you for surgery, but they also have a conflict of interest, right? They're clearing you for the surgery that they're going to do. If you are older and or have medical problems, you should go see your internal medicine doctor or your family practice doctor and make sure you discuss your medical conditions with them and make sure that your, that your medical conditions are optimized. Because I guarantee you, your orthopedic surgeon has no clue how to optimize your medical conditions. That sounds intimidating, honestly, to uh, think about saying to a surgeon before, uh, before I let you do this, I'm going to get someone else to clear me for it. Well, you but don't No, that's a, that's an excellent point, Jen. You don't have to get their permission though. I mean, what I would do if it were me and my mm -hmm. ortho, and I've had this happen, my orthopedic surgeon is like, yeah, let's schedule this surgery for blah, blah, blah date. I would then on my own contact my internal medicine doctor or my family practice doctor and say, Hey, I'm planning on having this surgery on XYZ date. Can I come in beforehand and just make sure that you think I'm good to go? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's an excellent point. You don't necessarily need to say that to them. Okay. 
that makes a lot of sense. And that feels like you are, are keeping control of your exactly. health and trying to, to stay yes. on top of it with someone who has the big picture and not just focusing on your ankle or your hip or whatever. Exactly. And knows you probably over a longer period of time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's great. So um, let's say we've gotten the medical clearance and we are ready and we are confident in what kind of anesthesia we're getting. What, if anything, should people do uh, about supplements before surgery? So definitely discuss, as, as we mentioned, as I mentioned, like bring all the supplements with you. Your surgeon, though, may or may not know which supplements you need to stop and which ones you can continue. And unfortunately, what often happens in that case is a lot of surgical practices, a lot of medical practices will have a very broad policy of stopping all supplements like two weeks ahead of surgery. In fact, I came across one just the other day from an institution that I highly respect. And they say their, their instructions are stop all supplements for two weeks before surgery. I will tell you, I have a lot of patients. I recommend supplements a lot. Um, you know, ones that are, are tested and, you know, uh, brands that are more reliable and things like that. But a lot of my patients, they have their mast cell activation disorder under better control because of the supplements that they take. So -hmm. these broad policies can be problematic because if you stop everything, now maybe you're going to run into a problem with your mast cell. So that's where, again, if you can talk to your internal medicine doctor or talk to your family practice doctor or talk to someone like me who can actually tell you, can go item by item and say, stop, keep, stop, keep. But then what I tell them is, take what I just gave you, circle back to your surgeon and let them know this is my revised plan. And, and, and I've never had anyone say that the surgeon wasn't okay with it. Mm. They just don't have the time, energy, knowledge, expertise to go through supplement by supplement. They don't know, which is fair because they should know about joints and hammering and nails and all that (laughs) that they need to know about, um, and how they're going to put all the bones back together and, and everything. But per the ASA, which is, again, I mentioned earlier, what the ASA is the American society of anesthesiologists, they have specific guidelines about what supplements you should stop. And it's a relatively short list. So there are the G's garlic, ginkgo, ginseng, and ginger. Those G's, garlic, ginseng, ginkgo, and ginger can all increase bleeding. Hmm. So you want to stop all of those. You want to stop um, kava because that can uh, potentiate anesthesia. You also want to stop St. John's wort because that can also prolong anesthesia, that and valerian root. And you also want to stop vitamin E because that can increase bleeding and cause problems with blood pressure. And ephedra is probably the most dangerous supplement, which also goes by Ma Hwang. Um, mm-hmm. That can cause dangerous changes in your blood pressure or your heart rate and can also interact with anesthesia medications. There's a few others that are you know, more iffy and they're not on the ASA list, but uh, feverfew and sal palmetto can also increase bleeding. And then um, a couple other things that can influence blood pressure include golden seed, licorice, and milk thistle. Well, and hopefully whoever is clearing you for your surgery has that list as we've discussed before. It's so hard. And you are like, I hate having to say everything I do, but it's important for them to know St. John's work can interact with a lot of different medications. So it's important for someone to have all that information in one spot. So that's, that's really great for people to sort of be reminded of anything else that a person can do to sort of help their, you know, cutting out supplements, discussing all of the plans, all of that. Is there anything else they can do to help themselves either before surgery or in the recovery period to sort of help their body uh, be ready and then be able to recover fast? Sure. And when it comes to the supplements, make sure you read your labels carefully because oftentimes supplements have a lot of different things in them. So make sure you read the ingredient list and you know exactly what's in your supplements. So when it comes to recovering from surgery, if you can go into the surgery in the best physical shape, now, obviously that's not always the case, If you, depending on what's going on, that's causing you to need the surgery. But if you can do some kind of prehab which is, you know, I mean, physical therapists now will work with you on a prehab protocol and work on strengthening other parts of your body or, you know, optimizing your physical functioning as best you can work on your nutrition. You know, if you can work with a registered dietitian nutritionist, like Kristen Koskin and Bendy Body's registered dietitian nutritionist, work with her or somebody else, work on your protein intake, 
vitamin C is very important for wound healing. So is zinc. So um, it's important to have calcium and vitamin D for bone healing. You want to make sure you have fiber because constipation can be a big problem after surgery. And so you may need like a prokinetic type drug to help make sure that your bowels continue to move after surgery. Um, a lot of the medications that we give you slow your bowels. So you want to make sure you take lots of fluid, you move as soon as possible because that will help your bowels wake up. People wonder, well, why are they making me get up and walk around right away? We used to have people lay in bed for days. Now we've realized that you have to get people up and moving in order to get their bowels to move. You want to make sure that you really plan ahead before you have the surgery, have plenty of ice on hand, have anything that you need to apply the ice to the body part. If you're allowed to do that, that you have that, make sure you have foods that are convenient, make sure you have props for elevate, elevating the body part, make sure you have plenty of your medications so that you don't have to run out and get refills of any of the prescriptions that you were on, you know, from beforehand. And I think probably the biggest thing is to prepare for normal than longer recovery. I feel like even for connective tissue typicals, surgeons underestimate how long it's going to take to recover from the procedure in a large percentage of cases. If they're telling you, like I had a big elbow surgery and they told me it would take two years to recover. That was not an overestimate. That was actually like spot on, like almost exactly right. <laughs> but I spent some time with a surgeon recently and, and going room to room and talking to the different people. And, and I was like, really, you really think they're going to be recovered in six weeks? Cause uh, you know, it's like, and especially as we get older, it takes longer to recover. And the more things you have going on, you know, that can cause, you know, limitations. But um, so it's important to think of all of those things. You may also need some temporary accessible parking. So plan ahead. If you think you're going to need that, talk to your surgeon about it and you can, you know, ask them to give you a temporary handicap uh, placard for your car. Maybe you're going to need something like forearm crutches because you're like me where you had loose upper extremities and you run into problems with uh, standard crutches, or maybe you even need a wheelchair. Maybe it's not a procedure where most people would need a wheelchair, but maybe you need a wheelchair. Mm -hmm. You obviously want to take care of all of those things ahead of time. That makes sense. And so we're talking about things that might be happening afterwards, right? But you want to prepare for it before beforehand yes, and before exactly. it happens. And I think it is really important what you said to prepare your mind for the fact that whatever they said is a really rough estimate and it may take you longer to heal. I always tell my clients, whatever the doctor has said, just double it. And <laughs> right. then, and then when it's sooner than that, you're like, yay. Yes, totally. <laughs> you know? That's perfect um, advice. Especially with, as we know, people with uh, connective tissue disorders, they can scar, their skin takes longer to heal. So even just that aspect of the surgery um, can take a lot longer, not much less the, the real issue that they were trying to address there. Right. Um, and, and we have a lot higher risk of like reacting to the suture, which mm -hmm. is something I, 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 we kind of briefly skimmed on, but if you've had problems with suture in the past, try to get uh, not the anesthesia record, try to get the op note, the operative note, because it will say in there exactly what kind of suture that they used. I've had sutures spit up through like so many incisions in my body. I reject suture like crazy. And so, um, you know, again, if, if you're going to the same facility or the same surgeon, they have access to that note. But if you're going to a different person, try to get your operative note from your previous surgery so you can show them, hey, this is what I had last time. And, and then describe exactly what happened. Like for me, the suture was coming up through the incision in my wrist, through the incision wow. in my belly button. Yeah. So there's, there's many, many different suture materials. And if you share that with them, then they can change what kind of suture they use, hmm. maybe how they make the incision. I mean, you know, they need to know that information in advance if possible. So the best way to have a really efficient and healthy surgery is to have multiple ones before that so that you can, <laughs> right. so that you exactly. can learn what works and doesn't work for your body. <laughs> Sorry. Perfect. <folks. laughs> Perfect. Well, and Anne, that, yeah, that's funny. Is there, is there anything that we didn't talk about today that you want to make sure we covered? Well, if I could wave a magic wand, you know, what I would do is take away all of those other previous surgeries and make it that we could predict if the surgery is going to be successful or not, is the surgery actually going to take away your pain, improve your physical, physical functioning? Because we know that oftentimes it, it does, it's phenomenal, but not mm -hmm. always. So we would be able to have much more better predictive variables. Like, okay, this person has ABC, therefore they're going to have a good outcome. This person has 
X, Y, Z, they're not going to have a good outcome. So that would be phenomenal. If we could, if I could wave a magic wand, we would know in advance what kind of surgery was going to work. And also we would have anesthesia that had like no risk or was like super safe for everybody. Even people like us that might be more <laughs> hemodynamically unstable, our blood pressure goes up and it goes down. And I mean, everyone's blood pressure goes up and down, but ours tends to do that more. Our heart rate tends to go up and down more than than uh, you know, con- connective tissue typicals. So um, I think I think I would I would wave those magic wands if I if I could. <laughs> I would let you. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to give me the wand. I'm going to give you the wand as soon as I find it. I I know it's still. I mean, people talk medicine as a science, but it's still an art form as well. And oh, totally. As you had said the the surgeons who have been around longer start to have that instinct and that feel for it, which is what makes it um, that that extra knowledge and those, those extra years, um, so valuable for us. And they truly do. I mean, the, the vast majority of surgeons and anesthesiologists out there are really trying to do what they think is best. And they really are trying to help people. Like that's, that's really why they're out there trying to do it. Communication skills might not quite be, (laughs) might not quite be so great, Um, they may have a lot of patients. They may be in a huge rush, but by doing just a little bit of preparation on your own and being ready with your talking notes, being ready with your conditions and knowing what you, what you need to tell them, knowing what is important to share with them is going to make the experience go a whole lot smoother and hopefully, um, lower your risks for a lot of things to happen. So, um, a little preparation goes a long way. Uh, if yeah. people want to know more about it or if want that they want to work with you, um, where can they find you? So the best place is to go to, uh, www.hypermobilitymd.com or bendybodies.org. Um, I do see patients through hypermobility MD and clients through bendy bodies. So if you live outside of the United States, you can become a client through bendy bodies. Um, if you are unable to come in person in Wisconsin or Colorado, then you can also become a client. And uh, the difference between clients and patients are patients can get, you know, prescription medication. They can get, uh, you know, prescriptions for lab orders. They can get orders for imaging studies and and things like that. I can actually treat them. But if you're a client, um, I do one-on-one sessions and I give information that is specific to you. So it's not, it's not medical advice, it's information, but I make it detailed enough that you can take it to your own healthcare team and they can carry out my recommendations. So I might say uh, patients with blah, 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 whatever you just shared with me, mm-hmm. patients with blah, 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 often respond well to this medication. And I'll even put like the dose and all of that in there so that, so that they can take that to their team. And, and one parting thought I wanted to make was, I also think that having a little bit older anesthesiologist is also helpful, although you don't get to usually pick. So, but I know I became much, you know, you, you learn as you go and -hmm. you're right. It's completely an art. I mean, I feel like it's, you know, it's yeah, there's science, but I feel like it's almost more art than science sometimes. Um, and so you learn as you, as you take care of people, I mean, you're, you're building your own, it's not formal research, but you're building your own foundation of knowledge and you use that as you go into other things. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, yeah, the people who are young, they just finished their training and they're, you know, and they're, and they got some great training and they're very, like, they know kind of some of those latest and greatest things, but um, I think if possible, someone, someone kind of in the middle is, is nice, but again, not that you can pick your anesthesia um, team, but uh, for your surgeon. Yeah. If you, if you can, I think that's helpful. <laughs> well, and if it's someone younger, maybe they have been listening to our podcast and they can take the benefit right. of your expertise right. and carry that in there as well. We, totally. we know so many um, doctors of internal medicine and surgeons and orthopedists who listen to the podcast and use it to kind of help deepen their own understanding of their patients. Right. So you are always welcome to recommend this podcast to your surgeon, probably not like the day before you go in, <laughs> right? Right. But, but, but it is a, an easy way for you to pass on a, a whole lot of information at a short time. 
Well, Dr. Bluestein, we are so grateful for you sharing your expertise on this subject. Everybody knows you as the hypermobility MD and all that you do for the hypermobile population, but to have a chance to kind of dive into your anesthesiology background has been hugely helpful. You have been listening to Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD, and our guest today was our very own Dr. Linda Bluestein, founder of Bendy Bodies. It was great chatting with you, Jen. Thanks so much. Absolutely. And we will see you guys next time. Bye. If you love what you've learned, follow the Bendy Bodies podcast to avoid missing future episodes. Screenshot this episode, tagging us in your story so we can connect. Our website is www.bendybodies.org and follow us on Instagram at bendy underscore bodies. Leaving a review, following the Bendy Bodies podcast and sharing the podcast helps spread the word about hypermobility and associated conditions. This information is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The information shared is for educational purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please refer to your local qualified health practitioner for all medical concerns. We will catch you next time on the Bendy Bodies Podcast. This episode of the Bendy Bodies Podcast was brought to you by Bauerfine Premium Braces and Supports, designed to provide joint stability and pain relief.